Well, good morning, Community Bible Church. I don't know how many of you watch sports, but if you are a sports fan like myself, uh, you, you've probably been accustomed to the pregame video shown before every football and every basketball game. And I'm talking about, I, I'm referring to the video of the players getting off the team bus and walking to the locker room together. You know, you know, what, you know what I'm talking about? They, they always seem to be in their, in their finest suits, carrying designer luggage, and they look rather focused. There is also one glaring similarity that is true of nearly every single athlete walking to that locker room. It doesn't matter whether they're a rookie or a veteran, the QB or the kicker, white or black, it doesn't matter. They're all wearing headphones. Now, I don't pretend to know for a fact what everyone is listening to in their headphones. Some perhaps are listening to Young Thug. Others, Luke Combs. Perhaps others are listening to a Nicholas Sparks audio book. I really have zero clue I don't know. However, I have always assumed, this is just an assumption as, as a, as a non-athlete, I've always assumed that these athletes are listening to a pump-up song to get them focused on the game. It's my assumption. There, there is something that they're, that they're listening to that, that changes their heart. It, it changes their intensity. It changes their demeanor. And can I let you in on a little secret this morning, church. Believe it or not, I have a pump-up song that I listen to before I preach. Now, that might, that might, be, that might be cheesy, but I have a pump-up song that I listen to on the way to church with my family. And it is a hip-hop song. Many of you know I like hip-hop by one of my favorite artists, Shy Lin. And this song is called Preach the Word. And it is a, it is a great uh, exhortation to preachers to remind them what biblical preaching looks like. One of my favorite parts of the song occurs midway through the, through the rap as is, is, is Shy Lin says this. He says, y'all should be mindful of this devout thesis. All of the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament, Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament, Jesus Christ revealed. I'll stop there. Now, if you've grown up in church, you're probably pretty familiar with the idea that Jesus is the point of the whole Bible. Did we not sing that this morning? We did. Maybe you missed it. But when asked, how is Jesus the point of the whole Bible, you might rightly point to Jesus' atoning work on the cross and his resurrection as we've preached about these past few weeks. In fact, if you read the whole New Testament, it is probably easy to see Jesus Christ as the point of the whole New Testament. However, if pressed, could you rightly point to how Jesus is the point of the Old Testament as well? Do we really understand how Jesus is the point, not just of various sections in Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Daniel, but also the point of Genesis and Leviticus and Numbers? 
This will be the subject that we seek to tackle over, over these next two weeks. We are going to look at Christ in the law and Christ in the prophets. And if I'm not careful, I might give you two false impressions here. First, I might give you the impression that such a study is a random topical sermon. Now, I'm not against topical sermons at all. However, today's sermon is actually a result of my exegesis of our text in Luke. It is. In fact, Luke 24, 27 tells us that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Our purpose in looking at Christ and the law and the prophets is to better understand Luke 24, 27. That's our goal. Second, I, I might give you the impression that such a study or, or, or lofty endeavor this morning is, is for purely academic purposes. I can assure you that I'm not here today to give you a seminary lesson. Today, friends, I'm aiming at your heart. That's the goal. I'm certain that understanding these theological truths can set our hearts on fire with passion for Christ today. No matter how bleak, disheartened, arrogant, frustrated, apathetic, or even joyful or happy that you find yourself today. So my main point this morning is, is this. When we understand what Christ did and fulfilling the law, our hearts should burn with joy. When we understand what Christ did and fulfilling the law, our hearts should burn with joy. And with that, friends, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be in verses 25 through 34 today. And if you're taking notes, or you don't, don't normally take notes, there, there should be some sheets in the back. This would be a great day to kind of write down because we're going to be all over the place. Luke 24, 25 through 34. Please follow along as I read. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were there, uh, uh, who were there with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You might recall from Doug's sermon last week that two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus three days after Jesus had been crucified. Suddenly the Messiah, who they believed was still dead, appeared before them in veiled form and decided to travel alongside them while discussing the events that just happened in Jerusalem. You can see that they stood there dejected as Verse 16 describes them as, as sad. They explained 
to their veiled Savior that they received an account from a few women that Jesus had risen. But, but as they went to the tomb, they traveled there, they, they found that he wasn't there. And so Jesus, in, in, in this conversation, he, he looks at them and he, and he calls them slow of heart. Church, do you understand the picture that is being painted of these two disciples here that, that Doug talked about last week? These guys, they've, they've hit rock bottom. They, they feel like they've lost everything and all hope is gone. Yet, in our text this morning, if you fast forward to verse 32, you see that these same disciples are being described as having hearts on fire. You see that? It's the contrast here that's being painted. They're overjoyed. They're excited. They are ignited with passion. No longer are they headed towards Emmaus, but what are they doing? They're heading back to Jerusalem in order to proclaim to the eleven that Jesus is risen and they've seen him and they're explaining the scriptures. Just the complete contrast here. Now, what happened? What happened? Between this point where there's dull, cold hearts and now hearts on fire burning with passion for Jesus. What happened? What thawed their cold hearts? What took scared, sad, and hopeless men and turned them into evangelists for Jesus? Well, we know from the text that their hearts were ignited when Jesus opened the scriptures before them. Wouldn't you, church, wouldn't you have loved to have walked alongside these two disciples as, as Jesus exposited the scriptures? Wouldn't you? I mean, this had to have been the absolute greatest sermon or teaching in the history of the world right here. Yet, Luke doesn't provide us with any major quotes from the teaching on the road to Emmaus. However, as we look at the context of Luke 24, 25 through 27, we know exactly what Jesus talked to them about that day. He preached the Old Testament to them. That's what he did. So our text says that Jesus began to take his disciples through the law and the prophets and explain to them the things that concerned him, the things that were concerning him. In an effort to understand what Jesus was teaching here, church, I want to spend the next two weeks looking at Jesus and the law and looking at Jesus and the prophets. And so today, I will spend the rest of our time looking at Jesus in the law, and next week, I will look at Jesus and the prophets, unless my wife has a baby, and Dave will preach, and it will be two weeks from now where we get back to Jesus and the prophets. If we're going to look at Jesus in the law, friends, it is vital that we understand what Luke means when he is referring to beginning with the law. When Jews referred to the law, they were most often referring to the Pentateuch, or the, or the first five books of the Bible. We know these books as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I, I don't want to scare any of you this morning. I, I'm going to be well aware of the time. But I intend to give a very high flyover of the first five books of the Bible this morning to tell us about Christ and what the Jews should have expected when the Messiah came. So let's begin by taking a several thousand years journey back to the book of Genesis. 
Like you're gonna need your Bibles this morning. I'm, I'm gonna be moving moving very fast, but like you're gonna you're gonna need it. But I might be going too fast. As we go to Genesis, as we consider the opening passages of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, you probably know that it features the creation account where God creates the world and everything in it, and God declares that everything is good. The pinnacle of God's creation is man because it is only man that God intentionally makes in his image and his likeness. So we find Adam and his wife Eve living in a perfect world, walking in perfect communion with God. There was no sin, there was no curse, there was no death. Yet if we know our Bibles, we know this, that that would soon that would soon change. Only, only three chapters into the Bible, we find Satan tempting Adam and Eve to disobey a holy God. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve both choose to willingly disobey their Lord. And therefore, they receive the punishment that God laid out in Genesis 2 for their disobedience. That punishment was death. They would eventually die a physical death, but in that very moment, they died spiritually. Their sin separated them from walking with their holy God. Their sin didn't just have ramifications for them individually, but for all of creation. The world and everything in it was now marred by sin. It was cursed. Instead of a world characterized by life and by holiness, death, destruction, and chaos would reign supreme across the universe. Yet in that moment of divine judgment, we see an act of glorious mercy. Though God's creatures chose to willingly disobey him, God would make a way for things to be made right between God and man. God makes a promise right here in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, as God is pronouncing judgment upon the earth, he turns to Satan and says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring or her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, God promised to send someone in the future to bruise the head of Satan. However, this would occur only through the bruising of the heel of one to come. In the Hebrew, this, this, this word bruising can be thought of as, as, as wounding. It can be thought of as, as crushing. It's, um, it's not simply like a, like a paintball bruise. Or you, got, you got hit in the arm and, and, and it left a, a bruise. It is significant. As we consider these, these two bruises spoken of in Genesis 3, we know that Satan would receive a decisive blow to the head. His head would be wounded. His head would be crushed. One would understand this as, as being a, a type of wound that would be, it would be conclusive. Satan would be defeated. This would occur through the bruising of the heel of the one to come. The one to come would also be wounded, but it would not be an ultimate wound. Instead, it would be a wound to the heel. It would be a costly wound. It would be a painful wound. However, it would not be a wound that results in catastrophic defeat for the one to come. This one to come is also identified as being the seed 
or the offspring of the woman. So we know that it is someone who comes from the woman who would one day crush the head of Satan. Adam and Eve also understood that the result of the crushing of Satan's head would also result in life for them. That is why Adam ultimately names his wife Eve, which, which sounds like the word for life giver in Hebrew. Why would he associate her with life if her ultimate fate was an eternal death? Yes, Adam and Eve hoped in their offspring to come who would do this work. That is why in Genesis 4.1, Eve proclaims, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord as she gave birth to her first son, Cain. Friends, we cannot overemphasize the importance of this, this promise found here in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, it is, it is not a stretch at all to say that the rest of the Bible is about how God fulfills this promise made in the third chapter of the Bible. The rest of the covenants found in the Bible, they, they don't exist in a vacuum, independently. Rather, the rest of the covenants lay out in detail how God would fulfill His promise made in Genesis chapter 3 with all of its ramifications. So we should really view the whole Old Testament, friends, through the lens of Genesis 3.15. Said more explicitly, we should view the whole Old Testament looking for the long-awaited offspring who would provide life to mankind by the crushing of Satan through the wounding of himself. However, what do we see? What do we see in the rest of Genesis? We see the devastating effects of the fall. In Genesis 4-11, through 11, we see wickedness increase upon the earth. Genesis 6-5 says that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. You see, we see Eve's offspring kill Abel. We even see the one righteous man, Noah, that it speaks of in the first early chapters of the Bible, fail miserably and end his days drunk in sexual promiscuity after God gave him mercy by saving him and his family from his wrath. As Noah's descendants increase, so does their unrighteousness. They are a people who, who don't seek the glory of God, but they are a people who seek their own glory. Needless to say, this is, as you read these first few chapters of, of, of the Bible, that the offspring of the woman does not have a good track record. It doesn't. They don't. As you read through Genesis, you quickly realize that none of these people could be the one who would crush Satan's head because they are just like Adam and Eve, sinful and rebellious. Yet, friends, God's promises aren't based on the behavior of man. Amen. God is a promise keeper. Therefore, when we approach Genesis 12, we see in greater detail how God would fulfill the promise made in the garden. In Genesis, a large chunk here, in Genesis 12 through 35, we see that God would fulfill this promise through a nation of people. God identifies a, a specific line through which he would work to bring about the head crusher. It is this nation that God would choose to bless. At the same time, it is through this nation that blessing would come to the whole world as the long-awaited one would come through them. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see the beginning of that nation as God makes a covenant with Abram. He promises to make of him a great nation. He promises to bring them into a land prepared for them. Later in Genesis 15, 5, God reiterates his promise with Abram. But this time, 
God tells him that his offspring would outnumber the stars. Ultimately, we see God give Abraham a son, Isaac, to whom God gives the same covenant promise to Isaac that he gave to Abraham. And then we see God give Isaac a son. His name was Jacob. And Jacob also received the same covenant promises given to Isaac and Abraham. In fact, it is through Jacob that we see this nation start to take place as God gives him the name what? Israel. So we see that Eve's offspring would come through the line of Abraham, then his son Isaac, and now through his son Jacob. And as one continues reading Genesis 36 through 50, you find the story of how Jacob's family grows. And just like, just like every family, their family has a little bit of family strife, you could say. His sinful sons ultimately sell their brother Joseph into slavery. Yet, in this act of sin, God uses this ultimately for their deliverance. God uses the story of Joseph to show how he sovereignly and mercifully preserves the line of Israel in the midst of sin, trials, and famine by bringing them into Egypt. In the midst of so many good stories in Genesis, and I know I skipped a lot. You're thinking, Brian, you didn't talk about that. You didn't talk about that. You know, I don't mean, McNon's making lunch today. We got to get there. In the midst of so many good stories in Genesis, what should the reader take away? We should see that man's sin broke fellowship with God. Because of their sin, they deserved death. Yet because God is a merciful God, he would provide one to crush their biggest enemies once and for all through the seed of the woman by his wounding. We should also see God demonstrating his covenant-keeping faithfulness as he preserves this line of people through which the Messiah would come. Which brings us to the book of Exodus. And Exodus begins where Genesis ends. God's people are now in Egypt and they are rapidly growing in number just as God had promised. In fact, the Israelites were growing so large that the nation of Egypt began to feel threatened by them. This is the scene that we find in Exodus 1 and 2. Because Pharaoh was, was threatened by the Israelites, he decided to enslave them and treat them harshly. He even sought to exterminate their line by killing all male Israelite babies. Church, do we see how Satan is at work to destroy the line of the one who would one day crush him? Yet, in the midst of their slavery, slavery we read in Exodus 2, 23-24, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. See the continuation here. With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You see, God's plan for his people was not for them to be enslaved. That was not his ultimate plan for them. God's plan was not for the physical seed of Abraham to be wiped out through genocide. God heard his people in anguish, remembered his promise, and decided to rescue them from slavery. God would not just rescue them from slavery. God would give them victory over their enemies and bless them by giving them a land. While God certainly loved his covenant people, the word tells us that God's primary purpose in doing this was for his own glory. 
Therefore, God was going to work in such a way that only God would receive the glory in this. This is the scene we find in Exodus chapter 3, where God chooses a poorly spoken fugitive named Moses to carry out God's grand plan. God would use Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and command him to free the Israelites from slavery. In Exodus 4 through 6, we see Moses and Aaron appeal to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh only became more angry and offended by the God of the Israelites as he was harsher with God's chosen people as a result. Still, Moses and Aaron declared to the people of the promise that God was going to deliver them. But as Exodus 6-9 tells us, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and because of their harsh slavery. Again, friends, isn't it good news that God's fulfillment of his promises, it's not based on the emotions of man. That God's promises aren't based upon how much we believe in God fulfilling his promises. Even in our deepest, darkest moments, God is still at work. Even when we don't trust God, God remains faithful to his promises. God is not like us. If God was like me, and I'm glad he's not, I would say, okay, Israelites, if you don't believe me, then stay in slavery. That's fine. God's not like that. Despite our unbelief, despite our apathy, God continually shows his mercy and his power in our lives. Are you, friends, this morning, are you, do you find yourself in a season of struggle? Are you in a season where God feels distant? Are you in a season that feels so weighty that one more straw will break your back? Friends, look to God in the Bible today and watch how he works for the good of his people when they don't see it and when they don't even care to see it. See a faithful God and be encouraged this morning. This is exactly what we see in Exodus 7 through 12. Moses, Moses and Aaron would constantly appeal to Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but Pharaoh would refuse to free them from slavery every single time. Every time Pharaoh refused to free the Israelites, God would send a plague to judge Egyptians and their many, many, many false gods. Yet, there was one final plague that God would use to finally free Israel from slavery in Exodus chapter 12. This event would be so great and so monumental in, in Israel's history that, that God would call them to remember this event. What's the text say? Forever. 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 So as, as they looked at this event in the Old Testament, this would have been one of those moments that stuck out to the reader. This would have been one of those moments that they put the bookmark or they highlighted it. In Exodus 12, 12 through 13, God describes the final plague that he would send upon the Egyptians. He says this, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, friends, God was bringing a severe form of judgment upon the Egyptians in the form of death. Yet, God protected the Israelites from the angel of death 
by the blood of a sacrificed lamb being spread over the doorposts of their homes. Only by trusting God and the blood applied to their homes could they live. This is exactly what happened. God delivered on his promises. Every house in Egypt that was rebelling against the Lord experienced death that night. And every Israelite who believed God and applied blood to their homes lived. This would finally set the people of Israel free from slavery. And so in Exodus 13 through 19, we see God's people leaving Egypt and heading toward the land prepared for them. However, it is in Exodus where God starts to clearly reveal his character to the Israelites. If they were going to be God's people and receive his covenant blessings, they had to follow him and they had to love him. In Exodus 15, 25 through 26, God made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. As the Israelites have already seen God's power at work, they quickly oblige and commit to obey all that God commanded. (laughs) However, it is not long after that where the Israelites begin to grumble at God. Just like God demonstrated his mercy to Noah and his family in delivering them from his wrath, only to escape the ark and fall into sin, we see the Israelites escaping Egypt only to fall into prideful idolatry. Yet, in the midst of their sin and rebellion, God does not give up on his covenant people. God brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai in order to reveal his holiness to his people. He does this by revealing his holy law to them. In the law, we see God's decrees. We we see his character. We see God's justice and we see God's grace. Before he gives the law, though, God makes the Israelites another promise like the one he made before. In Exodus 19, 5 through 9, God says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If, friends, If the Israelites would keep the covenant by obeying God's law, they would be a treasured possession. They would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Once again, the Israelites committed to obey all that God commanded. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse Exodus uh, to, to Exodus chapter 39, God lays out his perfect law before the Israelites. That's what he does. And in the law, we see how the Israelites would worship God interact with their neighbors, and most importantly, how they would approach God. What we see in God's law is that God's standard for his people is perfection. That's God's standard. God promised to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. But in order to approach God, it required the right sacrifices, the right clothing, and the right people, because God is a holy God. And finally in Exodus, we see that while God was revealing his perfect law to Moses, the Israelites, what were they doing? They were worshiping idols at the bottom of the mountain. Despite God's blessings and mercy, the Israelites chose to to live 
like the Egyptians, worshiping false gods. While God was angry over their sin, though, God proves himself to first and foremost be a God of grace and a God of mercy by saying in Exodus 28, 42, and 43, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Friends, God had every reason to wipe Israel off of the map because of their sin. Yet God remains true to his promises. And in Exodus chapter 40, God mercifully dwells among his people in the tabernacle. As one reads the book of Exodus, what should we take away? What should we take away? Like we read in Genesis we should see that God is a covenant-keeping God who remains true to his promises. Yet we also see if man is to live with God and be his covenant people, perfection is the standard. Perfection is required. And we also see that we can only be God's people by the shedding of blood. Which brings us to Leviticus. Leviticus is often, is often probably one of the most skipped and most misunderstood books of the Bible. One can pick out various laws and, and not understand what the intent of the law is. One can point to a variety of laws in Leviticus and laugh or blush or even maybe exude a combination of both. Be that as it may, like many of the themes in Exodus, the main point of the law in Leviticus is the holiness of God. That's the point. You want to understand Leviticus? You want to think it big picture? Think the holiness of God. You see, the law revealed God's goodness. The law revealed God's disdain for sin. The law also revealed man's sinfulness. It constantly highlighted the many ways in which man falls short of God's righteous standards. The law also reveals how we can live in a way that honors God here on earth. Yet, every man looks at it and then looks at his life and finds this, that he is guilty before God. None of us looks at the law and says, nailed it. We all look at the law and we are guilty. For instance, when we look at Leviticus 1 through 10, we see various types of laws for sacrifices. Sacrifices were needed because of man's sinfulness. You see, the text says that priests were needed in order to make sacrifice for the guilt of, of the people. However, because of the sinfulness of the priests, they had to make sacrifices for themselves before they could make sacrifices for the people. And God, he expected each one of these laws to be followed to an exact science. No deviation from God's processes in these laws was allowed. It must be followed in the exact order that God commanded. The result of bastardizing one minor detail of the sacrificial system and trying to worship God on your own terms was instant death. Never is that clearer than in Leviticus 10 where Nadab and Abihu would choose to not follow the incense regulation and what does God do? He kills them. Go look at that story later. Mark it, Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, we see that nothing unclean can come before a holy God. 
various diseases, diets, sores, touching of dead bodies, etc., would result in a person being unclean. We must remember that sickness, death, and diseases are, are a part of the curse and have no place before a holy God. Therefore, sacrifices were needed in order to make one clean again. When we look at Leviticus chapter 16 through 18, we see regulations around the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the one time of the year where the high priest could come into the Holy of Holies where God dwelt in order to make atonement for all the sins of Israel. This was a complex process that was very bloody and very detailed that was all about showing the Israelites the holiness of God and the repulsiveness of their sin. There was one overarching theme that rings out in this section found in Leviticus 17.11 where God declares this, listen, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. None. No forgiveness without shed blood. And as the book of Leviticus concludes in chapters 19, 19 through 27, we see the call in 19.2 for the people to be holy for I am holy. These people who were chosen and, and called out were to be distinct. They, they were to image their Lord. They were to bring glory to Him. God was blessing these people, but was ultimately working for what? For His glory. God was jealous for His own glory. God was working to make His name great among the people. And perhaps, friends, one of the most discouraging things in 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 Bible study is the way that people often view the law. Christians often look at the law and treat it as something that God provided to beat his people into submission. They see the law as something that was meant to only discourage God's people. Yet, the Bible only speaks about the law in positive terms. You, you can think about all of your favorite psalms that speak of the beauty and delightfulness of the law. And it's not lying. It's true. That was God's intent. Why? Because when the law is viewed rightly, it shows us how wicked we are, yet how merciful our God is. Christian, do you see how great an act of mercy it is when God reveals your sin to you? Do you think about that? Oh, how often as Christians, we work so hard to conceal our sin from everyone. You see, God could leave you hard-hearted like he did to Pharaoh. He could. God could leave you blind to your depravity. God could give you over to your sin. How should we respond when our sin is revealed to us graciously by our Heavenly Father? We should respond in gratitude and repentance. To, to my unbelieving friends this, this morning, I say this with fear and trembling. You never know when God finally might just give you over to your sin. You never know. You, you never know to that, that point where the good news of the gospel is never shared with you again where your heart is hardened for good and there is no turning back. Today, friend, I plead with you. I plead with you. If you see your depravity before a holy God and you see the mercy that he offers to you, turn to Christ, confess your sin today, and receive the new life that he offers. Do not wait. 
Do not rebel. As we consider Leviticus, what should the reader take away? We should see that in order for our sin to be dealt with, the shedding of innocent blood is required. Guilty blood will not do the trick. Tainted blood will not do the trick. Only the blood of a guiltless one will make true and final atonement for sin. Which brings us to the book of Numbers. And like Leviticus, Numbers is often a, a, a skipped over book. It is strange because it has so many different numbers and lists of people in it with various stories intertwined between the numbers. Yet, as we consider the book of Numbers... We know that the list of people serve a point. Not just random groups of people and names. It actually starts to point back to the book of Genesis and pick up this offspring theme. The list shows how God carefully preserved the Israelites as they continued to multiply. Detailed lists were kept in order to show how God would fulfill his promise of sending a redeemer through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, the book of Numbers isn't simply just encouraging. It is also disheartening. Because in Numbers chapter 1 through 20, we find that as God's people continue to increase in number, so does their unrighteousness. As they wander around the wilderness, they continually grumble against God. They don't obey His statutes. They rebel against Him and follow after other gods. And even after God has continually proven himself as trustworthy, they keep their eyes focused on their own abilities. Even though God promised to give them a land, they don't trust God enough to bring them into that land. The reason Numbers is so discouraging is because that it reminds us so much of ourselves. We've seen God as nothing but gracious Christians. We've seen God as nothing but loving and and providential in our lives, yet we all tend to forsake him and rely on our own efforts in this life, don't we? The hymn says it well, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If you're thinking of one word that describes the book of Numbers, think of that, that wandering. They wandered. They just wandered aimlessly for their own glory. We are so distracted with God's many blessings that we forget the God who gave them to us. We engage in self-worship. Friends, at times as we look to the book of Numbers and we look to the Israelites, we must confess that we are no different than the Israelites, are we? In the first 20 chapters of Numbers, we see that God is also a God of justice. He will not be mocked. To this point, He has shown great patience with Israel Yet we cannot forget about the promises he made to Israel in Exodus. God would keep them from harm if they obeyed him. If not, God would bring about the same sorts of plagues that he gave to Egypt. Therefore, we see Israel defeated in battle because of their lack of faith. We see God open up the earth and swallow those involved in Korah's rebellion. I mean, if you're looking for some crazy stories, you don't know the story of Korah's rebellion, go look at it in, in, uh, in Numbers. In, in Numbers 16, it says that those involved in their whole households were sent straight to Sheol alive. The earth opened up, swallowed them. Then God sent a plague to kill 14,700 more people because of their rebellion towards him. In spite of God's justice, though, 
He always brings mercy to those who call on him. We see a great picture of this in in Numbers 21. The Israelites, again, they, they began to grumble against the Lord. So God sent a plague of fiery serpents to judge the Israelites, to kill them. Yet the people began to plead with the Lord for forgiveness and to confess their sin. Therefore, God made a way for the people who deserve God's wrath to live. He told Moses in in Numbers 21, 8 through 9, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Friends, there was nothing that they could do to earn God's favor. They could only look to the one hanging on the pole and live. This was God's provision for them. And then in Numbers 22 through 36, we again see this perpetual problem of sin and rebellion before God. These people had interest in God's blessings, but not God himself. Because of their sin, two men named Joshua and Caleb would be the only Israelites who left Egypt that would also enter the promised land given to Israel. Not even the great prophet Moses or Aaron would enter into the land given to God's people. So as we consider the book of Numbers, what should the reader take away? We should see that God, friends, is very serious about sin. In order for man to receive God's covenant blessings, perfection is required. Man's only hope is looking for God, looking to God for mercy. That is our only hope. Which brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. Finally, we make our way here to the book of Deuteronomy, and one after the book of Numbers might think that God would abandon his promises made to Adam, to Eve, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and the rest of the people of Israel. However, as you see the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, you see that God has every intention of fulfilling his promises. For instance, in in Deuteronomy 1 through 9, we still find God remaining faithful to his promises despite Israel's disobedience. In fact, Deuteronomy in large part is about preparing the Israelites for the land that they are about to enter. Isn't that crazy? You think about all that they've done. You would think that God would not give them the land, the, the law there was preparing them to live in the land. God was doing this in spite of their sinfulness, not because of their righteousness. God was doing this primarily for his own glory. And God explicitly says this in Deuteronomy 9, 5 through 6. He says, not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of your heart are you going to pos- uh, possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your... It's about his glory. That he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Then in Deuteronomy 10 through 11, we see what God really requires from his people. And this is important. More than simply following various laws and regulations... God was calling a people to love him with all that they are. Hear that. 
God wasn't concerned with outward-looking obedience. We'll talk about that when we get to the prophets. God was concerned with hearts that love him. This is what proper worship looked like to God. This is what proper obedience looks like to God. To love him. To love him. Yet, as we've seen throughout the first five books of the Bible so far, that doesn't describe a single person, does it? Not one. Not one person through the first five books of the Bible loves God with all of their heart, all of their soul, and all that they are. Not one. In fact, no one loves God this way. No one perfectly loves God this way. Even today, as we sit in our chairs, can we really say that God is the thing we desire above anything else at all times with no rivals ever? Of course not. Like the Israelites, even we as Christians often fix our eyes and our hearts not on our Lord, but on the things of this world. More than the glory of God, we desire personal glory. More than the peace that God offers, we desire the fleeting peace that we think money, sex, or status, or relationships give us. Our only hope, even today, is the mercy of God. And that is ultimately what the book of Deuteronomy points the Israelites to, the mercy of God. In Deuteronomy 12-29, we see more and more laws to obey. And these are laws that no Israelite would or could ever follow. Every law that wasn't followed deserved the wrath of God. Yet, in Deuteronomy 30, God gives his people another promise. He promises that after the Israelites sin, if they repent and turn to God, God will forgive them and bless them. God will even change their hearts. Isn't that amazing? That God will change their hearts. They can't change their heart. They can't love God on their own. God had to do it. God promises, promises this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Do you see this, friends? This is good news. God will do the thing that we can't do. God in his mercy, he offers grace to every repentant sinner. Friends, is this good news? Amen. And finally, we see another grim picture in Deuteronomy in chapters 31 through 34. We see the great prophet Moses dies. Because of his sin, he would not enter the promised land. Can, can you imagine how the Israelites must have felt when they saw this? They had been looking for the one who would finally make things right between God and man. They were looking for the one who would crush the head of Satan. Surely Moses, who talked face to face with God, was going to be that one, right? Wrong. Not even Moses was righteous. Yet Deuteronomy promised that a prophet greater than Moses would come and would reveal God in a way that they had not seen before. So what should we learn from the book of Deuteronomy? We learn that if we are going to dwell with God, we must love him with all that we are. Yet even the best of men fail in this regard. 
Even still, God desires to show mercy to those who repent. Which brings us to our conclusion. This brings us back to Luke 24. You see, these two disciples walking to Emmaus were despondent because they thought that Jesus was the one who was supposed to redeem Israel. They thought. Keyword there, suppose. As they saw their former rabbi die, their hopes of seeing God's promise come to light died with him. Unfortunately for them, they had the same problem that many of their fathers had before them. They did not understand God's redemptive plan. They didn't understand the full picture of what God was going to do in redeeming Israel. God wasn't simply plopping them in a piece of land for them to thrive as a geopolitical powerhouse in the Middle East. God wasn't primarily redeeming them from other governments. God was ultimately seeking to unite them to himself by redeeming them from their sin. And so, friends, if they read Genesis, they would have looked for one from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would have been wounded not to defeat global powers, but to reverse the fall by defeating sin, death, and Satan once and for all. If they would have read Exodus, they would understand that if they were to dwell with God again, then perfect obedience to the law was required. If they read Leviticus, they would have understood that the shedding of perfect law-abiding blood must be shed to satisfy God's wrath. If they would have read the book of Numbers, they would have seen God's justice on display as he judged all those that rejected him. They would see that no man, not even the great prophet Moses, could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law to satisfy God. They would understand that their only hope is that God would act. They would understand that their only hope was God's mercy. And if they would have read the book of Deuteronomy, they would have seen that God isn't impressed or satisfied with people who just look externally righteous like the Pharisees. Instead, God is calling his people to love him with all that they are. They would have seen that no man has ever fit this description. No man in the history of Israel had ever fit that description. They would have also seen that while God is just, he is also a merciful God ready to save all those that turn to him if they would have understood what was written in the law, they would have understood that it was completely necessary for Christ to die. It wasn't optional. It wasn't the only option. It it was the only option for God to accomplish his purposes. Is that not what Christ was addressing with these two disciples? why it was necessary for the Christ to die. Therefore, if they would have looked at Jesus through biblical lenses, they would have seen the long-awaited seed of the woman who came into this world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would have seen him live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. They would have seen a man love God with all of their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. 
They, they would have seen a long-awaited prophet like Moses who didn't just speak for God, but was indeed God in the flesh. They would see that he met every demand to be the one that would crush Satan's head once and for all. If they would have looked at Christ on the cross through the lens of the law, they would have seen God's justice on display as sin is paid for and his wrath is perfectly poured out on a sacrificial lamb whose blood was spilled to make atonement for man's sin. Yet, they would have also seen God's mercy on display as it was not Christ who was kidnapped and put on that cross unwillingly. It was Christ who laid down his life willingly for us. It was God in his mercy who offered up his own son to give an undeserving people life and dwell with him forever. Then, as Jesus reveals to them on the Emmaus road, reveals himself to them on the Emmaus road, they would have seen that although Jesus died, death didn't defeat Jesus. No, Jesus beat death. Jesus, friends, he is alive. Jesus' heel was wounded, but in the wounding of his heel, Jesus wounded the head of Satan and the curse and sin and death once and for all. Friends, the wounding of Jesus' heel was not his defeat. Jesus is alive. Jesus reigns. Friends, truths such as these should cause our hearts to burn. As we see God's plan unfold over several thousand years exactly as he said it would, it should give us confidence, joy, hope, courage, peace, patience, and endurance as we seek to walk faithfully in the Christian life. God is sovereign. He reigns. He is in control. Now we await the day where Christ returns and brings his kingdom in his fullness. And just as surely as Christ came the first time, he will come again. We await that day. Church, let our hearts burn for Christ this morning.